Hello, and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I am your co-host, John Purefoy, and I'll turn it over to the real host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tide. Thanks. So as you, as you can tell, we have one of the, the most special guests and entertaining guests in crypto on the podcast today, John Purefoy, co-founder and CEO of FPG, the, uh, the crypto uh, founder who sells to some of the biggest quantitative hedge funds in the world in shorts and flip-flops in uh, 10 degree weather in New York. So certainly an certainly interesting guest. Um, most of you know the background, the intro on fundamental value. I don't have to go over it, but quick disclaimer, podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as the provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. John, as always, it's amazing to have you on. Josh, first off, I want to say thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I think for those who don't know, Josh and I have known each other for a long time. And I actually give Josh a lot of credit because we, we, we say that Josh is probably one of the best networked. And we were joking before that he probably knows the best people to throw different bashes and do things like that. Um, so it's great to be on. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah. So, so can we, let, let's dive right into this. Can you, can you give us a little bit of a background on yourself, how you got involved in crypto in the first place and, and why you always wear shorts and flip flops? Uh, this last question is probably the most important. Um, yeah, I'm happy to do it. So, I'll actually start a little bit early because I'm on the younger side. Um, so I grew up in Missouri. So and when I, you know, kind of grew up small town, middle of, you know, middle of nowhere, um, and spent a lot of time kind of doing things, you know, with my friends and things like that. And I learned to program because my friends actually wouldn't play video games with me. Uh, the cool game at the time was League of Legends, and I was terrible at it. And so I ended up having to learn how to program because I wanted to make an AI to be able to kick their butts. Um, but I kind of always loved, you know, building products, building physics, things like that. I did a couple of entrepreneurial things and I eventually ended up matriculating to MIT, studying electrical engineering, computer science and physics. And when I was there, I think there's probably two things that really, you know, were probably pillars of my time there. First of which was kind of data, data analysis and things like that. So I was very fortunate to be in a couple of groups that were on some of the newer applications of how do we apply things like neural networks or machine learning or things like that to different sets of data, different sets of you know, information, and how do you identify and extract trends and patterns out of that? And the second thing that I was really interested in is entrepreneurship, right? How do you actually start a company? What does that mean? How do you go about doing that? Um, and that actually kind of led me to probably one of my first serious endeavors, which was a company called Fway Algorithmic Trading. Uh, which was a great, great, great time. And it was effectively about how do we democratize finance, right? How do you, how do you give access to you know, the populace, to the masses with the tools and infrastructure and things that really you know, elite hedge funds and things like that use? And this is things including infrastructure, right? How do you give people easier access to be able to buy, sell, execute trades, do those in algorithmic fashions? And it's kind of things like that. Um, so anyways, so that was that. Happy to go deeper in that, but kind of finishing out the story a little bit, um, so I went through undergrad. It was very exciting, very fun. Afterwards, I was about to start graduate school. So I was actually looking at doing, and this was great. This was the buzzword set of the century. Uh, I was trying to do the physics of artificial intelligence. I'm happy to talk about that if you ever would like to hear buzzwords in a very consolidated fashion. And then I had a friend of mine who was really deep in crypto, and he said, you should really take a look at this, really, really go into it. And my friend and I had known each other for a long time. He ran some of the first Bitcoin miners at MIT and things like that. Anyways, we did, and it was just baffling, right? The inefficiencies in the space are crazy, and it's still hard today. 
And so we saw an opportunity. And first, we kind of did that as a fund ourselves, just kind of buying, selling, trading on the market. But to even do that, we had to build a lot of infrastructure, right? build a lot of technology, build a lot of relationships. And so we started getting to think, okay, how do we maybe package this up so it's easier for other people to kind of go about and do those things? Um, but that's a little bit of story about me. Yeah. And so I guess you kind of went into it already, which was my next question. What 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 was the original impetus for starting FPG? But I guess my, my question even and even before that is, why did you guys decide to go down the route of, of offering a, a product rather than continuing down the route of trading yourselves? I think it's a really good question. Um, so I'll actually parlay one of, I think, one of the leaders in this space and some of the people that I, I really respect. So Kyle from Multicoin Capital at the Digital Assets Summer last year, he talked about actually exactly this point. And one thing he was commenting was that, you know, crypto trading infrastructure is probably one of the solest, biggest things holding the market back, right? You talk about a lot of firms, right? They themselves were commenting, they tried to build it out, but had to spend a lot of time and decided that lift was eventually not worth it, right? The reality is that trading and software building are two very different verticals. And at the end of the day, being able to do both, particularly in a new market where opportunities are ripe, right? If I can get up and trade tomorrow, I can capitalize on that 2% arbitrage between, you know, Coinbase and Kraken or something like that. In reality, it's just, it splits very quickly. And you very quickly identify that it's not worth it to boil the ocean. It's worth it to specialize on one thing and do that one thing incredibly well. And for us, that was order execution and helping clients get the infrastructure they need. Yeah, and I'm I'm with you there. Um, you know, I have I have a similar answer. I, we get the question all the time, right? You guys have so much proprietary data. Why don't you trade it yourselves? And it's we're great at getting data. We're, we don't know how to, yeah. I don't know how to trade. Like that's not my area of expertise. And, and also, there's just limitations too. I mean, you know, we have a number of quantitative customers that are limited to yeah. you know their strategies are limited to ten, twenty, fifty, eighty million dollars. Um, and and you know the upside there is you know potentially even less than the upside of actually running a firm as well. So I agree with your point on twofold. One is, I think there's a certain magic about building a company versus a hedge fund, right? And I think this is probably something you can relate to as the tie has like, you know, grown and definitely expanded in terms of what you guys are doing, other things like that. But when you like look back and like think about that journey, right? Think about all the lessons you learned. Think about you know, the first conversation you had with a client or the first time you tried to go through hiring and things like that. I think this is a little bit of a different experience than, say, building a fund where you're spending most of your day probably building models, looking at data and things like that. I think it's a different lifestyle. I think you learn different things. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit open here. Like, you know, I have plans to world domination and things like that. And so I hear Jeff Bezos put it in vogue. And so I think the question is, how do you learn those skills? And I think you're exactly right. I think it's just a different experience. It's different technology. It's different things. It's a different lifestyle. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's also, look, I mean, you and I both love, you know, networking and going out and meeting people and building relationships. And, and, and certainly you can do that as a fund manager. But I think you, you'd want to keep your secrets a little bit more tightly held than you have to as a, as a founder of a company as well. Um, I actually totally, I, so, so, so piggybacking on that for two seconds, I think one of the best lines ever, which I think really is true about everything, right, is that sales in a lot of capacities doesn't exist in a traditional sense. Right? People, hate set. People hate being sold to. They love to buy. People love to learn. Right? When we go out and we talk to clients about, okay, this is how much it's going to cost you to hire you know, three or four engineers to build the system and maintain it over time. And this is what's going to happen when an exchange collapses. 
or you know this exchange is starting to offer this new product or this new thing and you want to be able to get that up and running fast enough right when you start just going out and teaching people and educating them it's so fun because you're helping people right you're going out you're solving problems you're asking yourself how do I help people? How do I do things, right? I think it's similar to a lot of stuff that you guys did with like Corp Dev and Sig Dev, right? It's ridiculous for someone to try to go out, build this huge infrastructure, scraping places, doing a lot of work, manually compiling that, right? It just makes so much more sense. So I think it's fun. I think it's cool. I think you get to educate people. It's it's definitely com- like it's definitely competitive in some aspects, but I think it's also, you know, a rising tide helps all boats. Like I don't think any of us would complain if crypto was more popular or infrastructure was more developed. Yeah, and so what was the original idea for FPG? I know you alluded to it a little bit, but but mm-hmm. you know what is FPG? How did it start, and how have your you know your mission, your products, and your goals evolved over time? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so it kind of pulls into that story I was a little bit telling in the beginning, where I think we really started more as kind of a quantitative and systematic fund, right? This was kind of late 2017, early 2018, great time in the ecosystem. And if you want to talk about networking, that time was quite funny for that. Anyways, we, we, we did this and we were pretty happy with it, but we had a lot of friends who were coming to us and being like, how do we do this or how do we make these things happen, right? And we kind of knew a good amount of people from like the data science community and, you know, that world. And so we, we were kind of talking to these people and we were like, okay, this is kind of how you go about these steps. And we started really realizing it's, it's, it's just a pretty ridiculous amount of work. Um, the way that we talk about it is we talk about really our value prop comes in three buckets. The first of which is infrastructure. Right? This is infrastructure on two fronts, technological infrastructure and it's business infrastructure. It's technological infrastructure, right? The average hedge fund in crypto connects to about eight different exchanges, right? To maintain those integrations, support those integrations and be able to easily transact across those places, it takes a lot of effort. Good examples of this, right? The way that Gemini, if you cancel an order for the second, if you cancel an order on Gemini, right? So you create an order, you cancel it, you're like, you know, my, my, my wife has told me that I maybe should not be, you know, making that $2 million trade. Anyways, and then you go and you try to create cancel an order again. What will happen is I will actually just give you a standard response. It won't air out. It won't do anything. You'll cancel it once. You'll get a response. You'll cancel it again. You'll get the same response. Go to an exchange like Coinbase. You do this on Coinbase. It'll air out the second time, right? It'll, you'll cancel it the first time. You'll go to cancel it again, and it will air out entirely and cause a problem. And so the thing is that, like, I think this really highlights the discrepancies between these exchanges. Right? And you have to constantly be monitoring that, constantly be supporting that, constantly make sure that's happened, right? We have eight of the smartest engineers I've ever met in my life and I've had the pleasure of working with, constantly building and making that happen, right? So the first value prop is really infrastructure. It's really technological infrastructure. But then it goes beyond that, right? So our business model really is that we help people on the other side of that too, right? This is a matter of we have accounts at all these exchanges. We have accounts at these banks. We have accounts with the other providers, OTC, Desk, and things like that in the space, and it's a matter of, okay, how do we package this up and give them to someone? So instead of you having to go out and go through KYC, AML 10, 11, 15 times, how do you maybe go through it once with us, develop a relationship with us, and then we'll go out and bury those communications on your behalf? And probably the strongest point, and it's funny, you and I were talking about this before, the, the, the joke is, and I apologize, and pardon my French here, um, but the joke is that you know we get paid to deal with the jerks, Right. The fact is that when something goes wrong on an exchange, right, an exchange holds up a deposit or withdraw, a bank doesn't move your money in an appropriate fashion, it ends up causing huge headaches and it, like issues for the entire system. And so you have to call these places, ask them what's going on, what's happening here, what's going on. And the fact is that you know it's our job to do that. It's our job to make sure that things are running on time, on point for our clients. And if it's not, it's our problem to deal with. 
And, you know, we joke that our clients are hard. Well, it's our job to make sure that their life is really taken care of and their life is going really well. So that's the first pillar, right? Infrastructure. It's infrastructure technologically and it's infrastructure from a business sense. And we summarize that by saying that we give people peace of mind, right? We give you peace of mind. When you're executing with us, you have peace of mind that technology works. You have peace of mind that those relationships and things are supposed to work the way they are. The second pillar is really around data. Right? It's how to use this data to derive better execution. We talk about algorithms in crypto. Happy to go deeper about that. But it's just generally speaking, how do you make it such that if you want to say buy a million bucks of Bitcoin or you're a quantitative fund that's going to sell $5 million in Ethereum every other day, you can do that in such a way that really doesn't impact the market and you can study that. Right? These are things that we study. They're things that we look at. And it's a matter of helping people improve that execution. And I think lastly for us, it's also a component of network effects, right? Because we have a lot of clients, because we have a lot of people, a lot of bargaining power with these various entities, we can bring a lot more to the table. If you're a small fund or even if you're like a medium fund, the amount of treatment, the amount of attention, the amount of fees that you could charge is pretty ridiculous, right? And so the ability for us to be able to go and kind of, you know, similar to like a union, right, negotiating on a group of participants, we kind of bring the same to the table, and that's pretty powerful. So, sorry, that's that, that's a little bit of an overview, I think, of what motivated it. I think really what our key value props that we bring to the table are. And I think, to be honest, that really hasn't changed too much over time. I think there's areas that I can talk about it's expanded, but at its core, I think it's done pretty well. And so I think you kind of, you know, got into a bit of it, uh, but, but you know, for everyone listening who doesn't know, what are the biggest challenges uh, with, with placing and executing trades in crypto uh, you know, particularly as it, as it relates to liquidity. Oh, okay, all right. It's a great question. Thank you. Um, okay, so we can touch on a couple things about this. So the first is fragmentation of liquidity. I think this is probably most commonly said, right? This is very commonly said in the news. You you see this a lot. You talk about you know coin coin market cap recently released like a liquidity measure, which effectively looks at how deep the books are. But you know, you go to traditional finance, right? There's 10, 15 exchanges spread across the United States that you can trade some of these assets at um, and across the world too. And then there's hundreds of brokers that you can trade them through too. So there's just, you know, you have the fragmentation. And in crypto, it's very similar, right? You have all these OTC desks, you have all these exchanges, and they all have different prices, different ways. It's, it's an issue consolidating that. I think it's the easiest one. That's the first one to talk about. There's a couple of other really cool ones too. The second one is probably back-to-back trading. It's called synthetic trading. And this is actually something that I don't know if a lot of people in the space take advantage of. Some of the really good quantitative funds really make a point of like making sure they emphasize this. Um, but a number of firms don't. The point is that like when you're trading crypto, right, all these assets typically have pairings in different ways. If you want to sell Bitcoin for USD or Bitcoin for USDT, then really what you can do is you can either sell it direct to Bitcoin to USDT or you can sell Bitcoin to Ethereum to USDT. Right? The point is that there's multiple different pairings. Sometimes those pairings have different prices. Sometimes they can give you more liquidity. Sometimes like that, right? This is just a calculation. And you sit down and you're like, okay, it's going to be three basis points for the fee to go from there to there. I'm going to save five basis points. Okay, it's worth it. And so the point is that you can really take advantage of that. So I think your second point on accessing liquidity is just for the vast majority of market participants, the amount of optimizations that you can do, it's not worth it for you to do that. It's not worth it for you to spend five, 10 months trying to build this back-to-back or synthetic trading system, right? Very few people can, very few people do. And so the reality is that, okay, well, how do you really take advantage of that? How do you deliver better value? Well, that's a matter of kind of being able to do that. So I think those are the two things on liquidity first. The last one I'll comment on, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, is regulation. Um, I think regulation is pretty pervasive in this industry. I think people are very aware. The fact is different different liquidity is accessible in different regulatory regimes, right? You're in the U.S., you have a very different like access to liquidity versus, you know, if you're located, say, in Asia or somewhere like that. 
Like BitMEX was a great example of that, right? BitMEX on an average day would do something around you know, $5 billion in notional contracts, while Coinbase on most days would do $500 million or something like that. So if you're willing to take advantage of regulatory arbitrage, you have access to a lot more liquidity. Now then you come into a question where like, okay, where do people sit on that? But anyways, coming back to your question on liquidity, I think the three biggest challenges that we see is one is the fragmentation of that and the non and the non-standard nature of that information. Two is I think things around back-to-back trading and other optimizations that you can do and take advantage of. And I think third is regulation. I think regulation consistently is an issue across the entire industry. And so one thing that I noticed on your LinkedIn uh, is, is, is you wrote that uh, our latest benchmark showed the ability to sell a million dollars worth of cryptocurrency at just uh, three pips, I think this is, off of current market value. So 0.00, is that three zeros? No, 0.003% off of current market value. So I'm actually, for those who don't know, a, a basic attention token well. I've made about 10 bucks so far off of ads. So... So how, can you explain kind of, you know, you know, you know, in all seriousness, how that's possible? I mean, you know, if you if you went on to to, you know, you know, it bit or, you know, Gemini or whatever other exchange and you tried to market sell a million dollars worth of chain link, you're going to crash the price. Right. And, and obviously that's less the case for Bitcoin, but kind of would love to hear how you're able to accomplish that for clients. So I think before talking about that, probably the most important thing is how do we even measure that? Right? Like we're able to actually give you a very concrete number. That, right? We're saying we're selling a million and this was our impact to the market. This is actually really hard right? to even be able to get this calculation. There's an entire field devoted to it. It's called transactional cost analysis. Right? In traditional finance, there's a couple of firms that are by far the dominant players for that. There's actually about three or four that are the largest. ITG, before it was bought by Virtue, is probably one of the most well-known ones. Right? And you can still actually go online and you can look up ITG impact cost analysis reports. And it will actually show you, okay, a little bit in terms of what they're seeing in terms of the market, right? You go and buy these equities, or you go and buy these other things, what's the impact that you're seeing? And I think that that's something that I really want to key on first, which is in order to be able to give you that number, you have to go through an analysis process. And I think one thing that I would underscore, and I think one thing that this industry is still very much in its nascent stages on, is really being able to understand that and see that. I think there's a couple of people that were doing pretty well. Um, Galois Capital, I think, actually had some really good postings online, kind of talking about this and talking about how they analyze it. But I think the point is just, you need a pretty good system for doing it. There's a couple of very naive ways to do it. You do it 10 times, you see the average price, you factor out the random movements of the market, things like that, and you go through, you know, you can do basic regression on that to kind of see. There's more sophisticated things you can do. You could do a market participant breakdown, do agent simulation, kind of the sandbox world to be able to see how you impact the market. Now coming back to your, so, so that's how you measure it. I think that's probably the most important part of this question I could talk about, which is at the core, the most valuable thing you can do is actually measure it. And I think I would underscore this again, which is I think one of the problems with crypto is that no one measures this right now. People are losing a lot of money because of these things. Like you're talking about non-trivial amounts of money because no one's looking at it. No one's actually measuring it. It's something I'm very passionate about. I care a lot about. Um, okay, so so then to the second question about, okay, how do we actually do it? How do we make that happen? Um, happy to talk about maybe some of the high-level points, and then you know, I could talk about the low-level points of this all day. I kind of love, you know, I, I love our product. There's a reason I'm very proud of what we do. Why don't we, um, why don't we go over some yeah. most high level a little bit of low level and then if anybody wants to find out more again we can <laughs> tell them how they can contact you so they can find out more from you directly you know josh there's you, you're a professional at this i appreciate that thank you I, I i often go down a rabbit hole and it's not helped 
um, you're more than happy to. So in terms of two or three things high level, so the first is I think take advantage of liquidity over multiple markets. Right? You're talking about things around basic, smarter routing, things like that. I think the second point on that is actually having that liquidity in places that you can use. We call this collateral management, right? When you talk to a firm, okay, if you want to actually go buy, say, on Coinbase, you need to make sure your money's on Coinbase. And so the question is, okay, how do you make sure that that's happening? How do you make sure that's happening efficiently? Those are things that we look at. Those are things that we study very in detail. I think the last is just taking advantage of the microstructure, right? There are things, you know, you can look at a book. So there's this really beautiful paper that was written by one of our software engineers that was analyzing, you know, actually order book flow and order book movements. And you can actually kind of tell which way the market's going to skew. There's actually a very strong trend, right? If you analyze the amount of bids and the amount of ask, and then look at the price five minutes later, there's actually a very strong correlation between seeing where those movements go, right? And the reality is that you can't really trade on the signals because it's not enough to really be able to generate alpha, but it is enough to improve execution. And it is enough to do things like that. So I think it's things like that. Um, you know, I could go into other points about esoteric knowledge and things, you know, that we've learned and the fact that we just do this a lot, right? We execute a lot for clients. So we have good visibility. Those are probably the highest. First is liquidity back to back. Second is collateral management. And third is microstructure. Um, I think the last thing I'd just say really quick on that is patience. You've talked about some of the esoteric tokens, like say BAP. Uh, the reality is that, yeah, no, you're not going to sell a million. Like, uh, yeah, it was, I was joking there for, for, for anybody. Yeah, you, you, you can't sell a million dollars worth of BAT without crashing the market. You might, uh, you might call some attention to yourself, uh, but not to make too basic of a joke. I'm done. Oh man, I was about to say, I was about to make the same joke. Wow, we're we're losers. <laughs> wow. This... Oh man. Oh man. So All right. Try to hold the events together so we can actually have friends, so we can get a better. Yeah, I know exactly. If anybody wants to be our friend, reach out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, something interesting that you mentioned was 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 collateral management. So, were you actually? Are you actually making the determination on behalf of your clients where to where to keep their their cash and and how difficult is it actually to move capital between exchanges? So, for example, let's say that I all of a sudden want to buy a million dollars worth of Ave, but Ave isn't you know listed on you know let's say I got I have a million and a half dollars right, but 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 Ave is only listed on an exchange that I have half a million dollars. How do you actually handle that and make sure that you know the 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 fund that you're working with has has sufficient capital? on the relevant exchange to actually purchase the assets they want to? You know, there's a lot of jokes I can make. I think I'll first say it's hard. I think that's what we'll start with. It's hard. I think this is a problem that if you talk to almost any hedge fund in the industry, like it's something that comes to mind nearly immediately for them. So I'll talk about two components of that. First, I'll talk about the determination on the behalf of clients. So I have to be very clear uh, in terms of, because I, I want to make sure that we're not overstepping our bounds in terms of any regulatory legal issues. So at the end of the day, it's always the client's choice and prerogative. Right? If you want all your money on you know, X exchange or Y exchange, by golly, you have the capabilities to do it and you can do it. Right? This is very important to note because at the end of the day, those are our clients' funds and our clients have complete control over those. Right? We, we can never break that veil. What we do offer and what we're starting to kind of like beta test and look at internally is systems to kind of automatically go about rebalancing or relooking at those things. Right? Imagine that you trade 50% on exchange A, 25% exchange B, 25% exchange C. Okay, well, what you can do is you can look at the velocity, how quickly are you gaining or losing funds on those various platforms, and then make sure that you get funds to the right places and take advantage of that. And I think that that's the key, which is, okay, how do you really analyze the flow and the speed of which? It's called trade velocity for those from the FX industry. How do you take advantage of those and make sure the funds are in the right places? We're starting to beta test that kind of internally and with some of our clients. Um, that's something that I think we're we're not rolling out quite yet. I think it's something that we're still looking at, you know, 
how do we want to go about and investigate some of the ramifications of that? But in terms of doing tests like that, in terms of just, you know, how best can we do if we really deploy this thing at full scale, if we really let the dogs loose? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive and it's pretty good. Your second question about is how difficult is it to move clients? I, I, was, I was echoing this earlier, right? It's our job to deal with the jerks. The reality is that some of these things can take quite some time in issues. Right? Ethereum gas fees right now are notoriously high, so moving Ethereum around exchanges gets quite costly and difficult. Things like some of these tokens that are not on main blockchains, but maybe on secondary blockchains, they can end up taking some time to move around. You have to try to predict those things. You have to try to do those things. Those are infrastructures that we try to look at, moving funds between point A to point B, understanding what time is that going to take, understanding the ramifications of that, and trying to analyze and see, okay, how can we do better for our clients? I, I think the last thing I'll say on this is, this is just the beautiful part of the business, right? We were talking earlier, why go into software instead of trading? Well, the reality is that we still get to do so many fun things in the market, investigate beautiful and fascinating you know, discoveries. We're talking about you know, an example of this, right? A couple of examples of this. Sandboxes for exchanges. The majority of exchanges don't have a sandbox environment or a UAT environment where you can test it and run your strategies and just play with them. And so one of the things that we get to do that's really fun is we get to think, okay, how do we generate this for our clients? Any good institution will want to be able to test drive strategies before they deploy them. And a lot of institutions will either set up other accounts on these exchanges or try to just deploy small amounts of capital. But that still limits you in other ways. Then the question is, how do you provide a good sandbox experiment? Those are also things that we kind of look at and try to provide to our clients. So I think the, the thing that I would just say here is it's fun. You get to do a myriad of problems. You get to tackle them every day. The space is incredibly expanding. It's it's just fun. And so where can FPG clients route orders? I mean, I, th- I think you alluded to obviously a number of different exchanges. Are you also uh, enabling users to route orders to OTC desks? Uh, have your customers interact? I mean, do you have a dark pool for your customers? Is that something that you've thought of or, or connecting to another one? Yeah. So a couple of points on this. So one, in terms of where can clients route orders, this is really dependent upon regulation. I think the easiest statement that I could say is if a client currently has access to exchanges, typically speaking, they should be able to access those exchanges and we will offer them on the platform. Right? There's some exchanges, obviously, we cannot support and do things with. But the majority of exchanges, if a client comes in and says, I'm trading on X, Y, or Z, we're able to make accommodations and we're able to make sure that they get executing on those. The second part is to your comment on OTC desk. This is where I'll be pretty upfront that there are some OTC desks that we support. There are others that are in the pipeline to go live. This is mostly just a matter of what level of technology does the OTC desk have and where do they do it? I think some desks are doing this really well. I think B2C2 has done an incredible job with this. I think Haymire has done an incredible job with this. I think there are several OTC desks that have really made it a point and done very well to have good APIs and good systems for that, but it's hard. And I think the last point is that, you know, OTC desk, the way they do trades and the order types they have are different than those on exchanges. A lot of times they'll do, you know, fill or kill or things like this and or RFQs. And so the question is, how do you make those two synonymous? How do you make something on an exchange execute synonymously with something on an OTC desk? It's actually a hard problem. It's a non-trivial problem. So in short, I think, and to your last question on dark pools, so I actually listened to your podcast with Best Fox a while ago. I'm a huge fan of Best Fox. I think they're doing incredible work across the board. I'm very excited to kind of see what they're doing with the dark pool. It's not something that we're doing, and I think we're not really doing it for more of the trust side. We try to be very transparent and clear with our clients so that we're always acting in their agency, executing those trades on the exchanges. And I think that's maybe why we're going around not quite going into internal crossing and dark pool and things like that. But I think it's really exciting, and I'd like to see where it goes. 
something you quickly alluded to there, which I think is really interesting, yeah. is is kind of you know different types of order types on exchanges. Um, and so, can you synthetically enable your client to do something like a fill or kill on an exchange if they don't offer it? And and what types of orders, uh, you know, do you guys process and? Like, like, you know, what types of algorithms, you know, are you offering your clients to actually execute? Like, I'm assuming, you know, typical things like, you know, VWAP and TWAP based trades, but is there anything kind of exciting that you guys have worked on? A hundred percent. So on a couple of these points, so first off, VWAP and TWAP, you're precisely right. A number of other interesting algorithms. So we really have two that we call, one that we call passive, one that we call active. Passive just means, look, I have a large position. I want to execute that over some period of time and try to get in or out of a larger group. And I really don't want to impact the market, right? So perhaps this order and this order type will typically trend to making making more orders than taking liquidity across the book, but it won't try to do that in such a way that you're stacking a book and it's very obvious, right? And so you can imagine this is kind of a souped up iceberg order in some ways. So we call that passive. The other side is active. That's more, I need to get this thing done. I need to get it done quickly. How do you make sure that you choose out the most intelligent spots and then go through them very fast, right? So imagine an SOR, but then spread out a little bit over time because crypto is pretty volatile and you want to take advantage of that. To your last question on order types, or to your first question on order types on exchanges and fill or kill on exchanges, that's not something we actually do right now. It's a brilliant question. It's one thing that we're looking at. I will say on this that it's very much client-driven client driven. So we've had some clients that have come in and said, look, I need to be able to offer to my clients just an RFQ system. I need to be able to tell my clients they can buy Bitcoin in the next X amount of time at Y rate, right? How, what, what can you do for me there? And in those cases, we can actually go to the exchanges and model a little bit. Um, and you can actually go the other way too. OTC Desk allow you to do RFQs to get their prices. If you request a lot of different quotes at different prices, you can actually start to create synthetic order books. And this is actually very exciting. It allows you to start treating OTC Desk like exchanges. Um, but in terms of the order types on exchanges, I think the best thing I can say here is docs.floating.group. That is where our documentation is. That's where everything is contained for our order types. That's where well, I love it. I think you're the first person to ever show your API docs on the podcast, and I'm all for it. I think that's great. <laughs> I think it's a great way to find out what a company's up to. So, so yeah, keep shilling. Coolest, coolest, by the way, coolest company that I really love is if you go to Plaid's careers page. So I'm going to pull it up on my computer right now. So go to Plaid careers, uh, plaid.com slash careers, and you scroll down. Ah, where is it? Oh, I hate this. If this is very embarrassing, find a role for you. One second. Oh yes, plaid.com slash career slash openings. Scroll down the page and it says apply by API. That is one of the coolest things I have ever seen. Is Plaid is such an API first company, and that's something that we really take. Uh, Postman just released a really cool study about the state of the API in 2019, and it's got some very fascinating findings in it, and you know, showing the most common frameworks, the common ways. Anyways, Plaid is very beautiful because they literally have on their website you can apply for a job via API. And I agree with you. I think APIs are everything. People in this industry are developers. They're quants. They, you know, I come from Missouri, the show me state. So I want to show people. I want to show people our product. I'm very proud of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with it. I'm with it. And uh I mean it, that that drives our entire business. I mean our entire <laughs> life and our entire team's life is hey, can you integrate these 17 APIs this week and by the way, can we redo our docs for our open API? Uh oh, and by the way, can we write them in a different language now? And Wait, so I, this is actually really terrible of me, but I don't know if I've actually seen your new API. I was looking at it before in terms of some of the SIGDEV stuff. But I oh, yeah. Our, our, see, our docs aren't that comprehensive publicly. Ah, and okay. There's reasons for doing some of that and not doing some of that. But yeah, we, 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 
some things are, are, are closely held secret. So uh, they're not necessarily open, open in our docs. No, I get that. But, I but get if that. you're trying no, to figure out what a company is up to and one of your competitors is up to and you're a crypto company or crypto data company, crypto information company, uh, order execution company, the best way to figure out exactly what your competitors do is to go straight to their API docs. I entirely agree because I think it's the source of truth. Right. I, I still do a lot of stuff on our product side. And Unless your API any- docs are inaccurate, in which I've seen a lot of times <laughs> in crypto. Well, I, I will agree with that statement. Um, yeah, I, I will just. So it's funny. I know this is a developer talk, but for any of the developers listening. So there's really interesting because there's a lot of questions over how closely do you tie your API docs to your code. Right. So there are some frameworks that are established such that you can directly take method signatures within your code and actually create API docs on top of that. Some of the most famous of this are like things like Swagger, right, that will actually automatically generate these API docs from your code. And that's a way to make sure that your API docs are always representative of what's underneath. And it's just overall really cool. Right. I think some of the most common frameworks that I think a lot of people use, everyone uses Slate right now. Right. So if you go to, say, our website, right, our docs are actually using Slate on the back end, which is kind of an open framework for doing API docs and publishing API docs. Uh, but there's like a lot of different ones. We had a very large discussion in our company over what docs we like the most. But I can talk about that for a while. Yeah, maybe this is an offline conversation. I think we, we may be losing people here. We may be losing people here. Point is, if you want to see what your competitors are doing, go to your API docs. If you want to see what FPG does really well and why you should use them, go to their API docs. And so I think that segues very nicely into my next question. Um, and, and I guess people could see that in the API docs. But what is the, the benefit of using FPG over other smart order routing companies or firms that are offering prime services in the space? Or at least, I guess, attempting to offer prime services in the space. I should caveat that. Yeah, so I love I love your question. And you don't have to go all the way to attempt. I think there's several companies that are doing it quite well, and I'm very happy to kind of see where it's going. I think the first thing I'll underscore is that people just really aren't using firms like smart order routing or firms like technology providers right now. Right? You, can most, you can go to a lot of these websites and you can total up how much they're actually getting, right? S-Fox is reasonably... As Fox is a reasonable example, you know, the coin routes, you can go to many of the providers in this space and actually see how much they're doing. The reality is that they're doing very small volumes. Right? And that's just because these systems aren't well known, they aren't well done. And I really think that that's probably the most key thing to underscore is that really people just aren't doing it this way right now. And most estimates put it at less than 1% of the overall volume in crypto. And so I don't think it's a matter of using us versus, you know, other firms or things like that. I think it's just first off a use that these things aren't used at all within the space. And I think if there was one thing that I would advocate for, it's really pumping that up, right? Prime brokerage is a very cool word. It's a very fancy word. People talk about it a lot. But I think the reality is that the nuts and bolts of that are both very in the weeds. And B, prime brokerage is a very broad statement, right? This is incorporating things like if you, if you look up online, right, how, say, Goldman Sachs makes money, right, or how, how a large bank is structured. Well, the reality is that prime brokerage is an entire field, right? You're talking about research, you're talking about execution, you're talking about settlement, you're talking about custody, you're talking about loaning, you're talking about things like that. Cap intros, I mean, we can go down the list. Precisely, cap intros, things like that. And so I think the thing that I would just say is that no one in this, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think I would just underscore that people really aren't using these. Now, talking specifically about, you know, what do we do and where do we do it? I think there's really two things. One is we know an exchange infrastructure. This is something we spent a lot of time with. We've spent literally thousands of man hours of really talented engineers getting to know the intricacies of these exchanges. And you can go on our website and actually see a number of those kind of use cases that we look at. 
And I think the second is that we do go above smart order routing, right? No matter how fancy your execution system is, it doesn't mean anything if your capital isn't there or other things that are just very operationally intensive and incredibly risky. And so the question is, okay, how do you do that? How do you do that in a regulatory compliant way? I think that's probably one of the other things to comment about this is that doing this in a regulatory compliant way and making sure that you're following good bills and procedures is really key within this. So I'd probably say that, but more importantly, I would just say no one is really using or no one's, you know, I I don't think we've made the leap into really using systems like that. And so you mentioned, um, you know, very quickly, just all the benefits of prime brokerages and, and how banks, you know, make money. Um, you know, off of these types of services. Do you have plans to become a full-fledged PB at, at, or, or to offer different types of prime services at a later point? No. Our perspective on this is partnerships, not boiling the ocean. I'll say that very upfront and flatly. I think what I would say on this is reach out and talk to us. I think there's a lot of firms that are looking at this from different angles. You see custody providers looking to integrate trading. You see trading providers looking to integrate custody. You see lending providers looking to integrate trading. You see lending providers looking to integrate custody. The fact is that everyone's trying to go at this from multiple different angles. I love crypto. I love crypto dearly. But the question is, how do we collaborate to make this thing a little bit more successful? So I think what I'd say on this is our plan is not to become a full-fledged prime broker. Our plan is to partnership with the people and make this thing happen. And so please reach out, talk to me. I would absolutely love to continue conversations on that topic. And so love to uh, kind of transition into your yeah. thoughts on a lot of the more recent developments in this industry. Uh-huh. And, and, and the first thing that comes to mind is, is DeFi and decentralized finance and your thoughts on kind of DeFi mania more broadly and the, the rise of, 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 you know, you know, decentralized places where users can, can execute trades and can make markets and what that, that, that means. So I'm more than happy to do it, but I will do it under the caveat that you have to give your thoughts on this too, because I know you have a lot of opinions on DeFi as well, and I know you have a lot of visibility because of you guys' corp and sig dev systems. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to first take a stab at it. So DeFi. I think the first case is to talk about the use cases of DeFi and what we're seeing. I think there's two that people are most familiar with. The first is DeFi exchanges, and the second is DeFi mode. I think these are probably the two, DeFi loaning, we'll call it yield farming. I think people are more calling it yield farming right now. I think those are the two most common uses of DeFi. Now, it's really important to underscore that DeFi is far more than that. DeFi is incredibly more than that. You talk about IOTA, right? Connecting smart cars together and sending data streams back and forth, right? DeFi is a very expansive ecosystem. But the most two common use cases today, DeFi exchanges and DeFi yield farming. And those are getting the most press. And I think the reality is that there's a couple things that are real with that. And there's a couple things that are fake. For instance, real. The AMM is impressive. The amount that you can actually get both in terms of returns, you know, your percent returns over the course of a year, as well as the amount of money actually blocked up in these things is very, very impressive. And it's also impressive how little slippage these things have. You can go on curve and trade 5 million of USDC for other stable coins for less than 15 basis points of slippage. That's very impressive. That is very incredible in literally one trade, right? The way that an AMM works is it's actually better to be able to do that, right? So, so the reality is that automated, automated market makers, AMMs, these are very impressive. They're a unique model, right? They're a completely new way of exchanges. Instead of having an order book where you have orders on one side and orders on another, it's just a pool of capital where people can put in or take out and get slippage depending upon that. It's very impressive. It's a really cool model. It's very unique. It's, it's very powerful. 
And so I think I'd say that. And I think second is the loaning, right? The ecosystems around that, MakerDAO and things like that. I think it's very impressive. I think this comes with some caveats, right? I don't know if it's clear to take over. KYC and AML is probably one of the biggest problems. Look at the KU point attack, right? 20 million has already been laundered through decentralized exchanges. And if you read, it's very funny, if you read the reports from, you know, the investigatory bodies, they were like, these hackers are noobs because they didn't use decentralized exchanges to launder the money. And it's, yep. A, yep. a little bit scary that they're saying that. But yeah, B, it's just, I, I think that's a massive problem. So this, And I, I've, I've talked about this a lot of times. We've had different guests on. We had Philip Gradwell from Chainalysis. You know, <laughs> I, I just had... George Pesak on from Kroll and Boring and actually talked about it on an episode with with Mitchell Moose from Crypto Briefing as well. The the idea that the second you KYC on an exchange, you're fucked. You will be tracked down. The regulators will find you. Mm-hmm. Crypto is 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 not fully anonymous, right? As much as people want to think it is. Yep. You know, sure you can, you know, you know, make money in DeFi, but the second that you try to get that into fiat on a, on a, on any exchange that does KYC, which is, you know, generally more of a trusted and, and well-regulated entity, your identity is, is, is gone. You, you will get caught. I entirely agree with you. I think, so I'm going to save this for the end. Cause I know a question that you ask all your guests is, uh, what is your favorite, uh, apologies in French here, but favorite shit coin? And the comment that I'm going to say here is actually Tether, USDT. And the reason why is, you know, you talk about crypto as this decentralized place. Look at Tether, right? They've literally blacklisted addresses. They can shut down money. If they suspect that money is involved in something that shouldn't be, you can actually lock that in smart contracts and not allow anyone to get it, right? And so the reality is exactly as you said, the minute that you start going to a centralized exchange or the minute that it's very clear which code is yours, Crypto is incredibly open. Everyone can see it, right? The Zcash thing is crazy, right? People being able to de-anonymize Zcash. That's nuts. Like the implications of that are crazy. And so I, I think, yeah, and I, th- I think DeFi kind of flies in the face of a lot of that right now. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, my personal perspective, you know, regardless of what my perspective is on DeFi and whether or not it's the future, I mean, my personal perspective is I don't understand how how anybody is going to be able to skirt regulation. You know, people... <laughs> You know, you know, some of these ICO issuers that, you know, you know, didn't get, you know, charged by the SEC for three years. You know, a lot of them thought they're out of the blue. You're not out of the blue. The SEC is still going after people. I mean, to think that by by, you know, for by violating the Bank Secrecy Act, but under the guise of decentralized finance and serving U.S. clients, you're out of the blue when, you know, uh, to your point, people are laundering money on your platform. It's being used by, uh, you know, people that are living in in countries that are on the OFAC list. You're, you're getting in trouble. I mean, I don't, I don't understand how that's possible. If you were took part in developing these platforms, you will get in trouble if you ever, you know, went through KYC on any exchange and your funds are somehow connected. Uh, you know, unless potentially you used a mixing service, um, in which case potentially. Um, and I'm not trying to give anybody advice on how to no. or not get caught by the, the you know federal authorities, but my perspective is just I don't understand how people can't look at this industry and think of the massive regulatory risks that exist. So I entirely agree, and I think there's a couple of things that I would say to frame this right because people talk about AML and KYC as very abstract topics. Let's talk about it very real, right? It's estimated that globally 800 billion to two trillion dollars in U.S. are laundered around the globe, right? That's actually quite substantial. That's two to five percent of the global GDP. 
you're not talking about a mom and pop that's moving a little bit of money, or you're not talking about someone that wants to buy some marijuana on the dark web. You're talking about an enterprise. You're talking about a huge commercial enterprise for criminals. And I think this is the first conversation about money laundering. It's not about a one-off thing. They look for a system. They look for a company. It's not worth it to just do it for a small amount of money. It's someone who's routinely doing this for large amounts of sums, you know, moving money around, washing it, going through several intermediaries. It is an enterprise, and it is a massive enterprise. I think the second thing to say is how much damage can be done with a very small amount. Terrorist financing is a good example, right? The FBI report on 9-11 suggests that that was funded with less than $500,000. That's nuts, right? Isn't that crazy? Literally 500000 of misplaced dollars can go to end up funding like some of the most horrendous attacks that we could ever imagine. And so I think the comment is you really need to talk about AML in pretty real terms. AML and KYC, they're not abstract things. They're not, they're not complicated. They're real. They impact a lot of people. You're talking about huge operations, and you're exactly right. You will not like be forgotten. I think the quote here is regulators may be slow, they don't forget, right? Looking at BitMEX is a really good example of this, right? And I know you guys kind of did some work with, you know, identifying the Arthur Hayes story this morning. Congrats on that and everything like that. Look at BitMEX, right? And it's, so we published a really cool timeline on our blog about this. So you can go to our Medium account and actually read it. It's called like CFTC and USAG versus BitMEX. And it kind of like lays out really what's going on. I think the thing to underscore about BitMEX is twofold. One is a lot of the things in that report were really where they were targeting some of the earliest days of BitMEX, right? We're talking about blog posts from Arthur Hayes in the very beginning where he mocked competitors for having to do regulation. Or we're talking about an internal communication from one staff to another staff that said they were deleting U.S. accounts in some capacity, right? Again, regulation may be slow. It doesn't ever forget. They will investigate these things down. They'll do it. And so I agree with you. I think KYC and AML will become prevalent throughout the entire industry. And I don't think you can get around that. I don't think you should. You're not talking about abstract concepts. You're talking about a pretty real one. So anyways, those are my thoughts on it. So then what does that mean for DeFi? What, what does that mean for the future of DeFi? Does that mean that DeFi platforms will just not be offered to US-based customers and, and customers in other countries with a lot of regulation? Does that mean that these DeFi platforms will just get built by anonymous developers or people like uh you know, Andre who's not really taking any capital out of them? Like like what is that and does it matter? if they're making money or not, because I think the regulator's approach is probably going to be if you are operating one of these platforms, regardless of whether or not you're making money, if you're facilitating money laundering, you're not in the, the green. Yeah. I think your question's good. I'd be curious your thoughts. I, I'll say two things and then I'd be really curious kind of where you're going with it more you see it. First off is I don't think this is a new story. Money laundering has been around since the dawn of humanity, right? Well, Okay, that might be a little bit dramatic, right? It's been alarmed for a long time. <laughs> Let's go with that. I don't think I'm enough of a comedian to be able to make that joke. Um, it's been around for a long time. Bitcoin isn't the first system people have used to do this, right? Any new asset class and any new way people have gone about it, right? When you talk about some... But of the Bitcoin is probably the worst system ever to do it. Let me just add that. Bitcoin oh, is is probably the worst piece of technology ever to launder money. As much as people think, oh my God, Bitcoin is just this, you know, this this dark web, you know, anonymous internet money that can be used for money laundering. I mean, as I alluded to before, you know, look, the, the fact is, you know, the blockchain doesn't lie, right? You can see transactions on the blockchain. You can see flows of capital and, and you know, you know, governments and regulators are spending millions of dollars a year with companies like Elliptic, 
you know, and, and chain analysis and, and others to be able to identify who's behind these transactions. So if you're going to launder money, you might as well use $100 bills as opposed to trying to use Bitcoin because it's just not a great, it's, it's, uh, look, there's lots of great use cases for Bitcoin laundering money. I don't think is one of them. I, I think I would entirely agree um, because I, yeah, I don't think it works. I don't think it gets there. I think some of the, so, so you specifically talked about like DeFi and DeFi platforms. I think that is interesting. Here's, I think where I put it. I think what will end up happening is it will become an infrastructure to a larger corporation, right? I, I think what you'll see is a big bank or some institution like that using things like automated market making pools or things like that to be able to host and do transactions internally and make those things happen, or maybe even expose them to more public senses. But I think what you'll see is the technology may be decentralized. I don't think the corporations behind these things will be. I think the great quote, Pomp this morning made this comment about Bezos with AWS, right? If, if oh, I thought that was funny, yeah. Yeah, it's like a good quote, right? And that's the reality. At the end wait, of the repeat day, it for everybody who, who didn't hear. Sorry, I, I cut you out oh, there. So. Oh, I want to make sure. Wait. Um, I think sec. the general gist of it is, is DeFi really decentralized? If Amazon, if Jeff Bezos shut down AWS, all these platforms would be offline. Um but but I think you know some other people commented you know kind of smartly. Well well I mean how many Bitcoin nodes are being run on AWS? I mean everything is being run on AWS. If Jeff Bezos shut down AWS, half the entire freaking world would be shut off. So so it's so I was talking to my friend about this the other day. There's a couple of services I don't know why they don't exist on AWS. I don't know why you can't get you know I want to take a picture of a Walmart in Kansas and I want to you know figure out what that looks like I want a satellite picture of a Walmart in Kansas I want AWS to be able to give me that right I want to make a call to AWS on an AWS service that would say satellite imaging and I can pay 10 bucks to get a camera picture of a Kansas Kansas City like Walmart um, and I'm really sad they don't have that on AWS right you can now. go you can go to maps.google.com and uh, you could put in Kansas City Walmart and go to satellite and uh, right. yeah Oh my gosh! I never knew about that. Really? Have they had this for a Wait, long seriously? time? Seriously, they've had satellite. Yeah, you. I mean, gosh, you can't I like, am... you can't oh, see like you know, like you know, you know, like uh, you know, prisoner detention camps in North Korea because they're you know not there, and you can't see Area Fifty One. But yeah, you can see a Walmart in Kansas City from satellite imagery. Okay, I feel the need to comment that I do. I am aware that Google Maps exists and you can see it, but I mean like a real time. I mean like today. Right, yeah, I get what I you're know. saying. I get, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. You want the Amazon satellite to directly position itself towards your Kansas City Walmart yeah. so you can see whether or not your mom is buying you pizza bagels for dinner tonight. There you go. I want to fa- I want to make sure she's okay. I want to make sure she's on time with the pizza bagel. Pepperoni is the most important part. And by the way, I just opened up Google Maps. You can actually zoom in on North Korea. I've never actually done that before. Oh, really? The mountains right now. Yeah. Very, I saw very cool. I, uh, I've started to get into this TikTok and Twitter thing. I've never really gotten these accounts before. Oh, I'm big into TikTok. TikTok, if anybody not on TikTok, before Donald Trump tries to shut it down, make an account, it's, it's incredibly entertaining. Wait, so they're not actually being banned. I'm a little bit confused on that. I'm going to be honest. I'm confused. I think it got approved. The or Isn't it Oracle and Walmart or something? Now? I don't know what the combined deal is, but... And then... And then the most, oh, that's awkward. Um, and then the most quality part of that whole thing was the differences in communication, right? Like Oracle was, we're going to own everything. And then I guess TikTok was like, you guys aren't going to own Yeah, that was rather humorous. Um, but anyways, I'm sorry. I think we're getting off topic. I think we're, we're totally off topic. Let's dive, let's dive back into this. I, 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 while I have you on, I got to ask the top. AWS has a very interesting model, right? They end up being responsible for a lot of the revenue and profit from uh, Amazon. But 
I agree. So anyways, so I think DeFi projects will take on that flavor. I think you will see corporations that are using DeFi technology, but I don't know if the actual governance of those platforms will ever be as democratized as people hope. And if, if DeFi, at what point does FPG get comfortable enough with DEXs yeah, to actually route orders? I'm so sorry. I muted you for two seconds. Go for it. Sorry. I, no, I said, uh, you know, at what point does FPG become comfortable enough with DeFi platforms to actually route client orders to DEXs? What has to be in place? Uh, so this is a good question. So this is something we're actually working with legal counsel on right now. And I think what I would say is this is part of the reason why I love crypto, right? You wake up one morning and this thing explodes and Uniswap does more volume than most centralized exchanges. I think there's a couple of comments here. First off, DeFi platforms are good for executing some types of orders. They're not good for all types of orders. And I think it's important to kind of know where those advantages are. I think the second is there are certain regulatory concerns about it. Generally, what we've seen is that there are certain projects in the loaning space that are more okay. There are some platforms on the DeFi side that are not. Um, I, I think, to be honest, though, I think this is more of a legal question than anything else. It's something that we're looking into. And so... Kind of transitioning a little bit. I mean, I think you and I could probably have an hour and a half conversation where we rip into a lots of different parts of yeah. DeFi that we disagree with. But uh, maybe we should uh, have that either on another episode or uh, or do that one offline. But one question that that we like to ask all of our guests, just because it is you know the fundamental value podcast after all, is how do you define fundamentals for crypto? How do you, how do you think about cryptocurrency valuation, and does it depend on the token? I knew you were going to ask me that, and I really want to have a cool answer for this. Um, I think I'd say two things. First off, I actually really respect a lot of the work that you guys are doing on the sentiment side of this and looking at how these things can be driven by speculation. I think if you look across the crypto ecosystem, I think that's probably the most stalwart thing that I could say is that a lot of these currencies will go up or down and the price will just very much depend upon sentiment in the market. And I think the important comment to say there is because I don't think a lot of people are looking at fundamentals and fundamentals really are a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? The reason why we're comfortable with certain people. hundred percent. Preach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, if I'm looking at it, yeah, it's a self-fulfilling problem. Same thing with technical analysis, right? If everybody believes that if you draw 17 lines on the chart, that the price is going to move in that direction of the 17 lines you drew and the RSI of the momentum of this, of that, of the Fibonacci yada yadas is, says this, if everybody believes that, then it will, it will do that. Right. So. What is that? What is the thing where they have like the Pythagoras numbers or something like that on a stock? And then have you ever seen that before? Like where they draw the three lines? Maybe. I don't know. I've seen people draw lots of lines. So, Okay, that's fair. Um, anyways, I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of cases. I think it's similar with respect to a lot of fundamental value. And so I think the greatest fulfilling self-fulfilling prophecy in this space probably is just sentiment and where people are at. Right, something comes out that tanks this price. There's nothing really that rebounds it. There's nothing really that is agreed upon fundamentals. There's no tribal knowledge on that quite yet. So you have a lot of people either from the FX industry or beyond reading charts and kind of doing those analysis. And I think they just believe the fundamental value is exactly the price that it's at. So I think that's maybe what I'd say in the fundamental value. I think the fundamental value in crypto is the price that you're seeing today. Because I think that's actually what the market is attributing to. And I think the market's attributing a lot of that to just speculation and other other types of momentum. But do you There's think no the market yeah. is always true in crypto? Because like, I look at Bitcoin SV and I looked at this yesterday. It's at a $3 billion market cap. I, I haven't had somebody explain that to me. <laughs> um, so whatever happened with the actual Bitcoin cash split? I was talking to someone about that. November 15th, there's another Bitcoin cash hard fork. Bitcoin cash is now splitting into Bitcoin ABC and Bitcoin cash. 
Uh, so another Bitcoin Cash. So Bitcoin went from Bitcoin to Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, and then Bitcoin Cash went to Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV, and now Bitcoin Cash is going to Bitcoin ABC and Bitcoin Cash. I don't, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like Roger Ver can agree with a single human being in the world. So. Well, it's at least he's a good guy to discuss things with then, right? If he can at least present some novel points there. Uh, look, I think his I think his heart is in the right place. I give him I give him full credit. Like he's he's always look, Satoshi wrote, you know, that Bitcoin was an electronic cash system and he's been, you know, that's what he's been fighting for for the last few years. So he is, you know, fighting, I guess, for Satoshi's vision, just to uh make a little SV joke there, even though he hates those guys. Um <laughs> The, uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the, the point there, but, but yeah, I mean, my point is like, how, how is it, is, is the market really pricing in the fundamental value or are these markets? And I think you would know this really well, given your, the, the extensivity of the market data that you guys are looking at. I mean, I mean, do you think particular markets are being manipulated more than others? Definitely on the manipulation. I agree with that. I think it's less rampant today. I think you still see in a lot of the leveraged futures contracts and things like that, you see a good amount of manipulation, right? Some and how, how are they doing that? I think there's some ways that are obvious. I think there's some ways that are non-obvious. So let me give a couple of examples. Give me one second. So I think the first of which is inflating a book, right? You're showing a lot of bids on one side without actual real intention to trade. Some people call that loss trading in different ways. Um, Right, you call it well, really call it painting a book, right? You call that painting a book. You just put a bunch of orders on a market, you don't really account for that. That's one way. Wash trading, I think, is relatively common in the industry still. I think, particularly on a lot of the platforms that trade future contracts that have incredibly low fees, it's very easy to inflate volumes for these things. There's been speculation that that's been the case for a number of these futures platforms. Um, and I think that that's a pretty rampant concern around that because then when I think people start seeing those volumes, they get excited about it, that brings in more people. And I think you can pretty quickly see how this could become a bad scenario for the people that are, you know, just casual investors in these different areas. So I think that, I think there's other ways that people are doing it as well. I think the most stereotypical is, right, you talk about the pump and dumps and things like that. I think you see that in a couple of cases. Um, I think it's also just more subtle nowadays. I think people are more smart about it. I think that makes sense, right? There was always going to be an evolution of that. And so I think there is manipulation. I think people are still doing the very common ways, painting a book, spoofing a book, wash trading on a book, uh, things like that. I think there's more sophisticated ones too, where they're really looking at, okay, how do we change the underlying values of indices? You talk about like another great example of this, right? Is flash loans and DeFi. I don't know how much people are familiar with flash loans, but DeFi is really cool, right? Because DeFi in a smart contract, I can go and, you know, make a trade with someone else. Like if I'm on, you know, some sort of DeFi or loaning platform, I can in one. So this is the really beautiful part. I talked about automated market makers earlier. The beautiful part about automated markers is with one line of code, I can say, buy me a hundred Bitcoin with USDT, right? I want a hundred Bitcoin. Give me that. And in the one line of code, by the time that finishes executing, I'm guaranteed contractually. I'm guaranteed from a programmatic sense to have that money. Right? So I can actually make trades and I can be absolutely confident in the return of those. And it's not really a guarantee you have a traditional market. It's one of the reasons why it's such a powerful model. It's such a powerful transformation. And so the reason why I say that is people can start to make smart contracts that are on top of this. So I can say, for instance, make one line that buys some sort of asset, right? And I can make the next line, which maybe sells it on another place, right? So you can start to think of that. Okay. Smart contracts, one of the beautiful things they came out with was the ability where you could get leverage within a smart contract. And so long as you give the money back by the end of the smart contract, you're okay. I.e., at the beginning of a smart contract, I could go take out a loan for $5 bucks, make two trades, and then give the $5 bucks back. They're called flash loans. 
right? And this is really amazing because now you start thinking about how can you manipulate this, right? How can you maybe go buy one market, maybe change the price of an index, right? Maybe, you know, you're seeing on one exchange that they're locating the price of BTC to USDT to some asset on Chainlink or something like that. The next line, you're going to go sell it somewhere else because you've now manipulated the price. So the price has gone in your favor and then you return the loan. So you've managed to make a $5 million arbitrage trade with absolutely zero cost to you. I think that's fascinating. I think these things are absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, and I, I, and I think it changes the game a lot in terms of how people think about manipulation. And so what worries you most about crypto? Uh, what keeps you up at night as the CEO of a of FPG? Uh, and, and what do you think the biggest risks are for the digital asset space? And, and, and let's kind of separate out DeFi and regulatory risk here and, and you know, kind of go into other risks that you think exist. Yeah, I think the easiest answer to this and I'd be curious where you go. It's speed. It's speed of this industry. It's speed at which people are developing things. It's speed at which people are trading. It's speed at which people are hungry for new types of instruments or new types of assets. It's the speed at which people are starting to really look at crypto. It's the speed at which things you have to develop products, right? The reality is that everyone wants the space to move very fast, but as you very well know, right, the products that you guys have are incredibly robust, incredibly good, but it takes years of very talented people building those things. And so you're contrasting two things. You're contrasting the fact that building good products is slow with an industry that is very hungry for innovation. That's why you see people put, you know, millions and billions of dollars in sushi and sashimi swap and things like this. Projects that, you know, are, are to some degrees maybe not as tested or built out as other places. And the problem with this becomes is that the industry is just moving so fast. And I think another place... We, we're going to avoid regulation in all the capacities we can. I think regulation is another example of this, right? It's very easy to move very fast if you're not looking at regulation at all. And the reality is that regulators might move slowly, but they will eventually catch up. So I think it's speed. I think the speed is the thing that keeps me up. I think it's speed about understanding what our customers want. I think it's the speed at which we're developing things. I think it's just the speed that the industry is moving at because it's not the same place today it was a week ago. Yeah, but I mean, I think, I think that's fair. What were you saying? Sorry. What do you, I'm, I'm curious, what, is, what would you say? What keeps you up? I know other uh, than your clients that are calling you 24 hours a day. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I mean, my answer isn't sexy. It's just, you know, that, that regulator shut down the fiat on ramps. Um, you know, to me, that's the, the, the biggest kind of scary existential threat. But I think to your point on speed, I think something that you, you got to there in your answer uh, that has always concerned me is just user experience. Um, and, and, you know, making sure that it is as easy as possible for somebody to you know, enter this space. And I think that the, the cash app and shout to square today for buying $50 million worth of Bitcoin, um, you know, keep it up. Hopefully other people follow good for good for this industry. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, fiat on ramps like the cash app are great. Uh, and companies that make it very, very easy for people to interact with crypto. I think, you know, for example, if PayPal uh, does, in fact, roll out Bitcoin buying, um, I think that that will be a, a positive. Um, but I think just making sure that we're continuing to innovate on user experience. Uh, and I think to your point earlier on sentiment, and obviously I have a, you know, a bias here just because, you know, we're, you know, that's um, among our core offerings is sentiment data. Um, you know, we really haven't seen, uh, a giant rise in the number of people talking about Bitcoin. Um, you know, this, this past quarter, we did see a rise in Ethereum. There's about a 50% increase in the number of users talking about Ethereum on Twitter. Uh, I think Bitcoin, the number of users talking about Bitcoin went up by about half a percent, uh, and is, and is, you know, generally down over the last few years. I mean, we're, we're, 
I, I, you know, on certain days, you know, we would have 100,000 plus people talking about Bitcoin, uh, you know, in the 2017 bull market on Twitter. Uh, and today we're around 23,000 users a day. Um, and so I, I just think that excitement and that that general mainstream enthusiasm isn't there yet. And, and that's what concerns me. I think we need to get to that point uh, because, you know, when you're caught in the crypto Twitter bubble and this bubble of people in crypto that have interacted with things like DeFi, you know, so, you, know you see this giant DeFi blow up and everybody gets so excited. But a lot of times that's just constrained to the existing users in crypto and the existing crypto ecosystem. And I think it's about time we start growing that. So that makes a lot of sense. And on your point on the DeFi stuff, I think a really easy example to point out with that is we were talking about yield farming earlier. Right? Curve is a good example of this. Curve, you can literally get, you know, you're talking about 30% returns over the course of a year, sometimes 100%. But the reality is that over 80% of those returns are in Curve itself. And the Curve price of the token has dropped 50% in the past two weeks. And so if you don't take a look at actually hedging this and how do you make that effective, those things that people are very drawn to, right? Those cool returns, those DeFi bubbles, those items, they get a terrible- I've been complaining about this for the longest time. Is is Everybody always talks about yield, but what is the yield in? Is the yield in hot dog or is the yield in, yield in US dollars? Uh, I, I think it's more or less in tulips at this point. <laughs> I think I right. think you might as well be getting your yield tulips because uh, you're exactly right. And I think one thing that people aren't looking at in DeFi is how do you do hedging of that? How do you actually do the appropriate allocations? That's something that we're looking into. It's something we're very excited about. It's something we're talking to a lot of our customers about. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It's pretty crazy. And so what has you most excited about crypto? Very loud things that drop often and make big noise and big bangs. I think, I think I'm going to have to go with that answer clearly. Uh, and I think on that note, right, I think it's the speed at which those things happen. I think it's the speed at which, you know, it's the same answer that I kind of give the negative. I think what makes me most excited is the speed of this industry. Like, you know, I can give the example about our company. We work a lot. I think everyone in this industry works a lot. I think everyone wakes up at 5 a.m. in the morning, works 18-hour days, and then goes to bed and tries to wake up tomorrow. I think we're all fighting the same fight here. I think we're all trying to make it impressive and trying to make it incredibly. And I think that community is an incredible one to be a part of. And so I think it's the speed because this is really just a game where it's how fast can we go? There's no shortage of opportunities. The amount of things that we've talked about on this call that could be businesses in and of themselves is nuts. And I think that that's what makes me so excited is this isn't going to stop. This isn't stopping anytime soon. And now that we're starting to get the basics in place, where do we really take it, right? People keep asking about use cases and things like that. My favorite answer to that is why not go make some, right? Now that we actually have the baseline things and starting those user experiences at a reasonable level, how do we take this to a next level and how do we really expand this ecosystem? And so you already answered my my final question, which is what is your favorite shit coin? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how, at, well... I mean, I guess you were actively trading. So what is the shittiest shit coin that you've ever traded? Um, it's a great question. Let me think here. I had a conversation with somebody about this token called Einsteinium yesterday. I don't know if you, if you remember Einsteinium, Einsteinium actually. Einsteinium. Oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. So we had, okay, so this is a funny story. So I'll tell a funny story. And I think in the beginning, I have to explain that we did not do any of this, that it ended up entirely folding. And so we never did any of this. We had a friend of ours who was convinced that he had you know, developed this technology that would allow him to do hash rate arbitrage, right? He would go on NiceHash and buy at one rate and then 
book out an AWS server and then mine that, right? Mine that pool, get a bunch of the token and then go to something else, right? And he could take advantage of those differences in prices between the hash rate, the speed at which he could do it and the market price, right? He was able to find kind of an equation to make that happen. And we kind of kept telling him that this was pretty skeptical, but he, he, he was always showing us the returns and saying like, oh, look at all the money you can make. You can really, you can make so much money doing this. And what we actually ended up looking was we looked at some of these tokens and you're talking about tokens that are absolute dirt, right? You're talking about tokens where the token price of these things are less than a cent and they trade. I want names, John. I know you want names. I know. Uh, I don't remember names. I'm sorry. It's been a long time ago. Okay, what's yours? What's your favorite shitcoin? I, well, I don't know if I have a, a favorite shitcoin. I actually have never traded shitcoins before. So I've I've never owned a crypto other than Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, other than my basic attention token that I occasionally get for free from Brave giving me advertisements. So I don't know if I necessarily have that. I have favorite shit coins that I remember back in the day that I loved watching and monitoring. Okay, um, what were some of those? Well, my favorite was when Denticoin hit a multiple billion dollar market cap. Um, that was a highlight for me. Um, I also, you know, obviously BitConnect, and you know, that's my Twitter background is, uh, you know, the uh, the BitConnect guy. I mean, that was you know one of my favorites. Um, there was there was one token where they wanted to have sleeping pods at airports and some for some reason you need a token for these sleeping pods they were going to build pods at airports that you'd sleep in overnight really um, and you'd get some sort of reward token for doing it or something so i thought that was uh quite fascinating i mean i think just all the stupid fucking utility token chucky e. cheese tokens that came out in 2017 and 2016 yeah. i mean there's just just an astronomical amount of them that just you know there were these utility tokens where there was actually no use case for or like you know there there's and i'm not calling on names here but like there are big you know there are big tokens out there that have 200 400 you know 500 million dollar market caps that have five daily active users um and it's just why like like <laughs> so understand it first off i think the sleeping pods at airports i get that i get that i always want a sleeping pod at the airport i don't know if they're doing but great. but do okay. you need it but but do you need to I mean, I, I look, it's a great business model. If you can get people people to give you $50 million in an ICO to fund your sleeping pod business, then get a sleeping pod token. I mean, why not, right? That makes it. And then I'm assuming they were using these tokens to be able to pay for the sleeping pods themselves. I, 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 I believe so. I, 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 I can't remember the full story, but I remember reading it and I was like, what are we doing? So one token, I don't think, I don't think this was actually too stupid. I just think that it's a little bit out there. And I'm very sad because I don't think it's actually taking off as much as I want. Decentraland, specifically Mana, I thought that was actually pretty cool. I thought this idea of virtual shout out, shout out Barry Silbert and DCG. Yeah, like honestly, like I thought, you know, I heard about that. I think it was probably late 2017, early 2018 or so. I could be wrong on the dates, Um, but I thought it was incredibly beautiful. And if you look at now, right, you talk about things, people creating renderings online in Minecraft of the offices or universities that they went to or places like Gathertown, which enabled you to have these virtual office spaces for your company. I, I think, man, I think Decentraland made a lot of sense. I don't know if the implementation of it was exactly what they wanted it to be, but I think Mono actually made a lot of, this is really beautiful. Like I played World of Warcraft a lot as a kid. I love that kind of stuff. And I think creating virtual avatars for real life makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I'm 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 on like 500, 600, 700 on coin market cap. I mean, remember all the random bitcoins like Bitcoin, Bitcoin uh, Diamond, 
Bitcoin gold, Bitcoin green. What were they? I really never got them. I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, I looked at, we now support 691 tokens on our website. 691? 691. And I'm just like, we don't even show all of them to users because I'm like, I don't even know what this thing is. This thing could be a pure scam. I don't even want to, you know, show it. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, look, I'm on, I'm on, I'm, 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 Six, token 698 right now somehow is a five million dollar market cap all sports coin do you know anything about all sports coin <laughs> i'm going to assume that it has something to do with sports all sports blockchain at some at some point in time all sports had a 209 million dollar market cap with 30 million dollars in daily volume i mean to me my favorite I, I just just think about that it's down over 95 percent um yeah from its from its all time high. I mean, just the fact that people were, and it went from. Listen to this on April seventeenth, or even on April twentieth, twenty eighteen, it was at twenty million bucks. By by May 9th, it was at two hundred million bucks. So it went up ten times in, in fourteen days. All sports coins. So if you got if you rode if you rode all sports coin up, I mean, I guess shouts out to you. But it's just you know for me that my favorite things are just looking at how ridiculous this was and how anybody thought that this made any sense. And the same thing to me goes with a lot of what's happening in DeFi right now. Well, I agree with that on the DeFi side. I think it's very reminiscent. I think a lot of people are seeing that. I think it also speaks to how far the space has come. I'm happy that the space has matured. I'm happy that you've really seen at least, you know, survival of the fittest with a lot of these various organizations and projects. And I'm pretty happy with that. I think, I think that's kind of where we want to keep being because I think, I think free market kind of lets you start establish and figure out who's the best. Um, not to go too much into a presidential debate that was wonderful last night, um, but I do think it's good that the ecosystem is slowly trimming down. Yeah, and I think I think just you know if it if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. And keep that in mind when you're seeing these these unprecedented, you know, returns and you know tokens with food names going up by two hundred, you know you know, 20,000% in in a couple of days, you know, what goes up must goes down. So you have asked me a lot of questions. It's my turn really quick. So I, I want to ask one question, which is what is your average golf score? Oh, terrible. Awful. But I did almost have a hole in one yesterday. I was about three inches from the hole. I, uh, I, I've been getting, yeah, yeah. I posted on Twitter. You can go to my Twitter and uh, and follow me. You can become like my two hundred and first follower, or whatever. I'm not quite the crypto Twitter influencer, but uh, I was uh, about about three inches away from the hole. My, yeah. I mean, my average golf score is 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 not good. I think I think at this point I'm sub hundred. Oh, I, I think ninety. I think nineties. But 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 my goal is by by the by the end of uh, at the end of next year to be in the eighties. Okay, so my father apparently can shoot high seventies, low eighties. Oh yeah, no, he he he'd destroy me. I mean, I'm I'm more of a I'm more of a par three uh, par three hole guy myself. I I got to say the strength is not there. All right, John. Well, look before we we bore everybody off. If anybody is still listening, you know, I really appreciate you sitting through this this nonsense and. Uh, I know, I know John and I are, uh, you know, we, we can go on, go on tangents, but, uh, but can you kind of just finish this off? Where can people find you online? Where can they follow you? Where can they follow FPG and remind us of your API docs? Because I think that's the most important thing. 
More than happy to. So yeah, first off, docs.floating.group. I really can't say that enough times. Docs.floating.group. It's where we have all the documentation about our API. You can request a key there. You can talk to our team. You can get to me. We're hiring, so I'm more than happy to talk to anyone on that front. In terms of contacting me, John at floating.group, please feel free to reach out anytime. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and all that. I'm very, you know, I'm very popular on Twitter. I'm, I don't think I'm quite to Josh's level of you know, famousness yet. I could hope. I think I have about 40 followers, <laughs> uh, which, which is very great. But I, I think that, and yeah, honestly, I love to talk to anyone and everyone. More than happy to try to help in any way. Well, you're going to try to keep putting out a little bit of data and different understandings about different areas. So please be watching out for that. Um, and no, thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciated this. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you.